Deuteronomy, we're in chapter 5, and you remember what Deuteronomy means? Second law. This is the repeat. This is the, this is the rerun. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is where we are. Last month, the people at Merriam-Webster Dictionary released the 2005 Top 10 Words of the Year. Seven million people logged onto their computers to use the Merriam-Webster Dictionary online dictionary. And the company president, John Morse, commented on the list. He said, it gives us an interesting window that opens up into what people are thinking about in their lives. These were the 10 most frequently looked up words on the Webster Online Dictionary in 2005. Number 10, inept. Number 9, levy. Number 8, conclave. Number 7, pandemic. Number 6, tsunami. Number 5, in number 4, filibuster. Number 3, contempt. Number 2, refugee. And the number one word, the word that got the most hits, integrity. Now, now, it's interesting when you study that list. Some of the reasons why these words were frequented are obvious. Levy and refugee obviously result to the results of Hurricane Katrina. Inept might have been provoked by the government's response to Hurricane Katrina. Tsunami harkens back to December 2004 in the disaster in Southern Asia. Pandemic, no doubt, relates to the bird flu threat. A conclave of cardinals met this past year to elect a new pope. Filibuster is what the Democrats did to President Bush's judicial nominees. Contempt and insipid may describe our reaction to their filibuster, which leaves the number one word on the list, integrity, which Webster defines as a firm adherence to a code of especially moral values. And again, the president comments, I think the American people have isolated a very important issue for our society to be dealing with. I agree. Could it be that Americans are smart enough to realize that despite our world's more obvious problems like hurricanes and tsunamis and epidemics and political squabbles, the real problem in our society today is a lack of personal integrity. People today are like a boat adrift without an anchor. They float on the tides of convenience and self-gratification with no moral values to ground them, no overarching, uncompromising commitments to which they live, no convictions. Like the teenage girl that was accused of having no values, she snapped back, no values? How dare you say I have no values? I bought this blouse I'm wearing for 30% off. That's about the depth of our values. Everyone needs a moral base. Everyone needs a moral anchor. A collection of non-negotiables that have been set in stone to which they are committed Regardless of whether their peers are with them, regardless of the stress they're under, what are the principles on which you are willing to take a stand? In chapter 5, God reminds the second generation of ten non-negotiables that God gave to their fathers at Mount Sinai. Moses repeats the Ten Commandments. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel. The statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, 
that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb or Mount Sinai. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. Notice that the Ten Commandments were as much for the kids and the grandkids as they were for the adults that had come out of Egypt. And they're as much for you and I today as they were to this generation. Verse 4, And the Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up to the mountain. You remember Mount Sinai was the site of the physical manifestation of Almighty God. God appeared on the mountain, engulfed in smoke, in flames, and fire. And he spoke to Israel the Ten Commandments. In fact, God placed such enormous importance on his top ten list, these Ten Commandments, that he conveyed it to a frightened Israel through an audible voice. They heard him speak these commandments. Moses stood between them. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. But notice the preface to this first commandment. He says, I'm the one that saved you. I'm the one that delivered you from slavery. I'm the one who loves you. Did you notice that all these commandments are in response to God's grace and God's deliverance? Don't forget that. God never just frees us from freedom's sake. Freedom is really an illusion. Everybody serves somebody. Our only real choice is we get to pick our taskmaster. Sin is a cruel taskmaster. God loves us. He treats us great. This is why God pleads with Israel to worship Him as their only God because He is the one who loves them. He is the one that's taken care of them and delivered them and will bring them into blessing. Verse 8, You shall not make for yourself any carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. You see, the true God is spirit. He has no physical boundaries. He has no natural limitations. Thus, to associate God with any material or tangible image is to constrict Him. You see, the second commandment prohibits marginalizing or diminishing God. And it's interesting to me that the Roman Catholic Church, with its preoccupation with statues and icons and images, leaves this commandment out of their list of Ten Commandments. It's convenient. For I, the Lord your God, he says, am a jealous God. Now, he's not jealous of us, but he is jealous for us. You see, God doesn't want to share your love with anyone. He he wants our unrivaled allegiance. And, And Moses here tags on a warning. For God judges those who are disloyal. He rewards those who are faithful. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We can break the third commandment in three ways, through profanity, through hypocrisy, or through frivolity. Obviously, attaching 
a profanity to God's name or using God's name in disgust or in anger is using God's holy name in an unholy way. And that's nothing less than blasphemy, profanity. The other way to take the Lord's name in vain is to spout a claim to know God without any real association to God. That's hypocrisy. That too is taking his name in vain. But perhaps the most common way to break the third commandment is to throw God's name around without really taking God seriously. People do that all the time. In our culture, everybody wants to talk about God. But what does God mean? People (laughs) define it different ways. Everybody mentions God, but no one puts forth the effort to really understand who God is and what pleases God. You see, here's the devil's goal in our society in a nutshell. He wants to keep God in our thoughts, but make him nothing more than an afterthought. There are a lot of ways to take the Lord's name in vain. Verse 12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no, do, not do any work, You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your maidservant, nor your manservant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, or your lawnmower, I suppose, hopefully, did it that way, nor your stranger who is within your gates. My wife doesn't interpret it that way, but I always interpret it that way. Nor your lawnmower. That your manservant or your maidservant may rest as well as you. Work seven days straight, and it makes one week. You get that? Work seven days straight, and it makes one week. Hey, take a break, or you'll break apart. God wants us to rest and reflect and recharge our batteries one day in seven. Remember what God created at the end of the sixth day? He created the man and the woman. All God's creation prior to the man and the woman was designed to support the human habitat, to give us life and the livelihood that we enjoy. But when man was created, God stopped his creative work. For all that was left for God was to enjoy the humans he had made. Thus God rested, not because he was tired, but because he desired to hang out with the man and the woman that he had created. He wanted to spend time with them. Later, of course, God put man to work. But he wanted Adam to return to him one day in seven to spend time with his creator and to remember why he was created. God created Adam by breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. In essence, every seventh day, God wanted Adam to come back to him and catch his breath. To return to the source of life. The Sabbath is our opportunity to spend time with God and in doing so, be spiritually refreshed and renewed and recharged. Honor the Sabbath day. You'll be better for it. Verse 15, And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Remember, Every day for 400 years, the Hebrews worked without a day off. They didn't get a day off for 400 years. It's hard to believe that they would ever balk at taking a Sabbath day off. I mean, they'd worked straight for 400 years. God, though, knew 
about greed and about busyness and about ambition and what cruel taskmasters they can become. Probably worse than Egyptians. And this is why God commanded that we take one day in seven to rest. He says, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. If you want to live longer and live better, honor your parents. Now it's interesting. God wrote these Ten Commandments with His own finger on two stone tablets. The first tablet dealt with man's relationship with God. The second tablet dealt with man's relationship with his fellow man. And most people place the fifth commandment on the second tablet with man's relationship with his fellow man. But I think it belongs on the first tablet. Because I think this strikes at the heart of our relationship with God. For tell me please. If you can't respect the authority that God has placed over you that you can see your parents, how then are you going to respect and honor the authority that you can't see your God? Makes sense. Verse 17 tells us, you shall not murder. Notice the newer translations say murder, not kill. For there are some God-sanctioned types of killing. Capital punishment, for example is biblically justified. Self-defense, a just war, are all biblical forms of killing. Murder, though, is taking a person's life without a biblical justification. And this is what he forbids here. Thou shalt not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Did you hear about the Sunday school teacher who was teaching the class the Ten Commandments and it was great until they got to the Seventh Commandment and that's when one of the kids asked, what does it mean to commit agriculture? Well, the little guy got his words confused, obviously. But he still received the right answer, for while the teacher was laughing, another one of the students jumped up and said, it means you shouldn't plow in another man's field. (laughs) That's what it means to not commit agriculture or adultery. In both cases, you shouldn't plow in another man's field. The sin of adultery occurs when a person engages in sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. When you decide you'd rather plow in someone else's field than in your own. And even if two people are unmarried and they have sex, it still violates their future spouse. In a sense, it's adultery in advance. It's still plowing in another person's field. You're still guilty of of plowing where you don't belong. And the person that you offend, both the person and the future spouse, will have to deal with the damage that you've caused. Verse 18, you shall not steal. And put positively, it means respect other people's property. You remember private property was God's idea. That's what makes robbery a sin, not just against the victim, but against God. And here's a list of ways that you can steal without necessarily breaking in a person's house. Shoplifting. Pilfering from the company. Taking home little pins and pads and so forth. Failure to pay your taxes is stealing. Fraudulent insurance claims. Software piracy. Padded expense accounts. Failure to pay child support. Frivolous lawsuits. Borrowed items that never get returned. It's really stealing. 
unlawful downloads of music. Oh, does that hit a chord somewhere out in the congregation tonight? Taking a Coke out of the brook without putting your 50 cents in the can. Let's just get real personal here. And the worst form of thievery of all, withholding your tithes and your offerings. From Malachi tells us that is stealing from God. Verse 19, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. Don't gossip. Don't exaggerate. Don't slander. Proverbs 19 verse 9 tells us, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. And number 10, verse 20, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his donkey, his car, his golf clubs, her new countertops, their high-definition plasma-colored television, or anything that is your neighbor's. Hey, there's nothing wrong with wanting nice things, with working hard and saving your money and purchasing amenities that will better your life. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the Bible teaches us that God wants us to, He's given us richly all things to enjoy. He has. But we should be content with what God gives us. Covetousness is when we want what the other person has. One of my favorite cartoons is two cows sticking their head through the fence, same fence, eating from the other cow's pasture. The grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? A Christian should be characterized with contentment, not covetousness. Verse 21, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. He spoke these words where they could hear them, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. It's been said the Ten Commandments were given in tablet form, and by following their directions, we can avoid the use of a lot of other tablets. Indeed. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. And this was a surprise to them. For they figured that God was so holy that if he revealed himself to man directly, sinful man could never survive the encounter. They say, now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, then we shall die. I mean, they still weren't quite confident in God's grace, were they? For some reason they had survived, but they didn't want to push his patience. And so they turned to Moses. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear and do it. They figure God must have had some timer up there or something. And, you know, when their time was up, he'd zap them. They didn't understand God's grace. They didn't understand God's mercy. God was gracious to them. That's why he allowed them to enter into his presence. And that's why he spoke to them. But they're afraid. They're afraid that... 
they might be judged. And so they turn to Moses and they ask him to intercede for them. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. I love that. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Stay between the white lines of God's will. That's good strategy from us. Just stay right there in the center of his will. Safest place you can be. Best place you can be. Chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word hear is the Hebrew word shema. And this is why the Jews call verse 4 the great shema. The Shema was the Jewish creed. It was really the affirmation of their faith. In the midst of the polytheistic ancient world, the Shema declared the monotheistic nature of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Judaism was the only religion to state that the true God is one God. And whenever the Jews had a public assembly, at their evening sacrifice, at their morning sacrifice, they would always utter the great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But this Shema holds even a deeper revelation. For the word that's translated one is the Hebrew word ekad, which speaks not of an absolute unity, but of a compound unity. When the rabbis go to illustrate the word ikad, they hold up one fist, but they point out that even though this is one fist, this is also five fingers making up that one fist. It's a compound unity. It's one, and yet it's many members. This is a beautiful way to describe the Trinity. For God, too, is a compound unity. He is one God. No doubt about it. But he exists in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I heard of a little girl who was asked if she knew the term, the biblical term, for the three persons of the Godhead. And of course the teacher wanted to hear the word Trinity, but the little girl answered, the triplets. 
Well, she was right on the three persons, but God is still just one God. One God, yet existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And of course, we remember in Mark 12, one of the Jewish scribes coming to Jesus and testing him, which is the first commandment of all. And you remember Jesus answered him with this passage. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first or the greatest commandment. According to Jesus, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, is the greatest of all the commandments. If for no other reason, that's a good reason to study Deuteronomy. Jesus did. We're to love God with all we've got. All our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. We're to love Him with all our being. We're to love Him passionately. And we're to pass on our passion for God to our children. Verse 6. For these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Now, I love the way God tells us we should teach spiritual truths to our kids. And all parents need to pay attention. Notice he doesn't say to hold daily Bible classes. Or to have fun and festive Sunday schools. Or to bust the bank to send your kid to Christian school. Or to even sit down once a week and have a family devotion, although all of these practices have merit and value. The preferred method is much more hands-on. It's much more personal and relational. The best approach for conveying spiritual truth to our kids is to integrate its application and relevance into everyday life. Teach God's truth as you live your life when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, let God be filled, let your life be full of God, that love for God to your kids. Always be on the lookout for that teachable moment. The kid on the baseball team who throws a temper tantrum becomes your opportunity to talk about why a good attitude is important. Rejection from a friend becomes the springboard you need for a lesson on how our security needs to be in God and not in man. Nervousness before a test is fertile ground to teach the power of prayer and a reliance on the Holy Spirit and the importance of doing your homework. <laughs> That's also part of it. These are all fertile opportunities to teach our children spiritual truths. And remember, this is how Jesus taught. Jesus, very seldom did he ever sit down and preach sermons to his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount, maybe. All of it discourse. I don't remember another sermon. Matthew 13, perhaps. But, but he preached very few sermons. He had very few sit-down Bible studies with his disciples. No, Jesus would just be walking down the road one day, and he'd see a man with a bag of seed, and he'd turn and he'd point, and he'd say, Hey, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. And he went on and told that parable. Or he would be hanging out with his disciples around the campfire, whatever, and a flock of birds fly overhead, and Jesus would say, Look at the birds in the air, for they neither reap 
nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You see, he, he was always drawing on real-life situations to teach spiritual truths. And this is the best way to communicate spiritual values, lessons about God to our kids. Just as we live our lives for God, giving our kids windows into our love for God and into our passion for God. The context of chapter 6 helps us interpret verse 8. He says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. My commandments, in essence. Bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses is talking about this comprehensive, integrative approach to applying God's word to our world. And thus he says, bind it on your hand. In other words, let God's word guide your actions. Bind it between your eyes. Let God's word color your thoughts. Write God's word on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, let God's word set the atmosphere, the tone within your own home. That's how I interpret it. The Orthodox Jews, though, have a whole different take on these commandments. They interpret them very literally and they apply them very practically. In fact, they wear leather pouches wrapped around their forearms and their foreheads and then tied to their wrists. They're called phylacteries. And these pouches contain tiny pages of Scripture. And this is their way of binding it on their hand. And then they have mezuzahs, which are these little weatherproof boxes that hold these verses from Deuteronomy in them. And they nail them to the columns or the doorposts of their homes. And so when they enter or exit their house, they kiss the mezuzah to show their love for God's Word. A much different interpretation, but... However you interpret it, the idea is to surround yourself with the Word of God. Put the little plaques up. My wife, she puts the little scripture verses. And when she had time, she used to do that crocheting thing, you know. Needlepoint, that's what it's called. And she would put the needlepoints on the wall, trust in the Lord. And everywhere you go in the house, you know, you're just surrounded by God's Word. We need to do that in our homes. Verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. I like that. I mean, Israel was about to go into a grace land. A grace land into a world that was all about grace. All of the blessings that would be before them were unearned and undeserved. They would inherit houses they didn't build, crops they didn't plant, fruit they didn't grow. And this is our experience in Christ, is it not? The Christian life is a grace land. It's all about grace. It's all about receiving the blessings and the benefits that have been wrought by the work of Christ, not our own, not through our own hands, but through the gift of God. He says, but when you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And notice this warning, lest you forget. As we talked about last week, the theme of the book of Deuteronomy is ability to remember. Do not forget what God has done. And we are all susceptible to spiritual amnesia. I talked to some of you. And you're struggling. You don't know if God's going to provide. You're worried. 
I remember sitting down with you six months ago and rejoicing over how God blessed and how God came to your, your rescue and how he delivered you. I remember what God did. Why can't you? It's different, though, when it's me. <laughs> I mean, we, we have that amnesia. It sets in all of a sudden, and we forget the good things that God has done. We have a responsibility to remember. This is what Deuteronomy is telling us. It reminds me of the woman sitting in her car at the train station, and she was about half crying, about half laughing when the policeman walked up to her and asked her what was the matter. And that's when she explained, well, for 10 years, every morning I've driven my husband 20 miles to this station to catch his train. And this morning, I forgot him. <laughs> Israel had spent 40 years with God. But that alone didn't mean they would always remember him. They had a responsibility to remember and you do too. Verse 13. You shall fear the Lord your God. In other words, you're to reverence God. Show Him the proper respect. And serve Him. And shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods. The gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. He's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. He says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. Right out of Egypt, the Hebrews started complaining that they had no water. And God told Moses to strike the rock and from that rock water flowed and God silenced their grumblings at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to cast out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? And this is the question your son is going to one day ask you. Some of you got babies right now. Some of you got preschoolers, even grade schoolers. You haven't gotten these questions yet, but they're coming. Trust me. One day your son is going to ask you, why should I do that? They're going to ask you for the reason behind the rules. They're going to want to know the rationale to obey God. Why is sex outside of marriage such a bad idea, Mom? Why should I go to church every single Sunday, Dad? How do we know that the Bible is God's inerrant word? How do we know? Hey, Trust me, those questions are coming, and parents need to be informed. They need to do their research. They need to be prepared for when your son asks you in time to come, you need to be prepared to give them sound, logical, biblical answers. Moses tells the Hebrews, Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe, against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He tells parents to make sure their kids know their testimony. That's a good start. To make sure that their kids know how they were saved, 
how God worked in their life to deliver them. Have you shared your testimony with your kids, parents? Let me encourage you to do so. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. In verse 23 to me, it's one of the most important verses in the Bible. For catch this, understand this. If you don't take anything else with you, understand this tonight. God always brings us out so that he can bring us in. Will you say that with me? God always brings us out so he can bring us in. He says he brought us out from there that he might bring us into this land that he's promised us. Guys, God delivers you from sin. He saves you. He washes you. He cleans you up. Not so he can put you on his mantle and show you off to the friends that come over for dinner. That's not why he does it. No, he brings you out so that he can bring you in to this promised land, to this land of blessing. So that you can win battles and so that you can conquer enemies and so that you can be fruitful and so that you can enjoy His grace and His blessings. When you come to Jesus, God brings you out of the world to bring you into a better life. He always brings you out in order to bring you in. Don't forget that. Verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. I love that. To fear the Lord is for our good always. That He might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments which the Lord our God as He has commanded us. The chapter 7 opens with a battle plan for the invasion of the land of Canaan. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gergesites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Uptites and the Mosquitoites. I like to do that. Seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. And we talked about why this utter destruction was necessary. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here, you want to go back and get the CD. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. And I think the thing we need to remember about the Hebrews is that at this point, they lacked the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why they were so easily surrounding neighbors. You see, since they had no inner strength, they were subject to outside influences. You see, if you don't have a power greater within you than is without, you're going to capitulate. You're going to be tempted and drawn in. That's why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need a power in us greater than the power outside of us. And this is why God put such tight prohibitions on the Hebrews mingling with the pagans in the land. For he knew that the Hebrews lacked the power to resist temptation. And they would get sucked in by these pagan marriages and they would end up falling into idolatry. This is also, also why we need to make sure that our kids are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because if we expect them to resist temptation, we need to equip them with the power that they need to resist temptation. 
They need the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, but thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. In other words, when it came to idolatry and these pagan practices and their images and their altars, God expected Israel to have a zero tolerance policy toward any flirtation with idolatry. He says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And holy means set apart, reserved for God. It, the Hebrews were to be reserved for God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. That's how God sees you as well, as a special treasure, as we talked about this morning. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And what an amazing statement this is. God didn't choose Israel because of her natural advantages, her large numbers, or her pedigree, or her special endowments. God chose Israel for one reason. He loved them. And I hope you know the same is true for us. It is all about grace. We get into God's family not on our merit, but on God's mercy. It is all about grace. Verse 9, Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keeps His commandments. And He repays those who hate Him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with them who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. And he will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. You see, these were the blessings of the old covenant. What we need to understand is that God was building a earthly, physical kingdom within Israel. And thus his covenant translated into these physical blessings. He would take away the sickness from them. He would bless them materially with their cattle and their herds and so forth. Today, there's a difference. Today, God is building a spiritual kingdom. We are a part of that kingdom, and thus the blessings we can expect from God are not necessarily those physical blessings, but the spiritual blessings that He has for us. He wants us to be rich, but not necessarily materially. He wants us to be rich spiritually. This is why Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings 
in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. And here's another difference between the covenants. Under the old covenant, the idolaters were destroyed. Under the new covenant, they're loved and converted. Verse 17. Now if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh. Remember, to remember. Did you get that? What's our responsibility? To remember. So often our faith gets short-circuited because we don't remember. But you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. Hey, when the Lord fights for you, even the hornets become your allies. The secret weapon. I didn't mean for the Charlotte Hornets to get up there, but they're defunct now, aren't they? Didn't they move to New Orleans? That had nothing to do with the Bible study. Verse 22. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You shall be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Notice the byproduct of a mass extermination of the enemy would leave no one to help thin out the population of lions and tigers throughout the land. Israel would be rid of one problem, but they would inherit another problem. And thus God chooses to drive out the enemy a little by little. He promises victory. But here he tells them that it will be won in increments. And guys, this is true in our lives as well. Sometimes we want it all, all at once. Man, we want overnight, instant elimination of all of our problems. But that's not how it works, does it? That's not how discipleship works. That's not how we obtain victory in Christ. Yes, immediate victory does occur the moment we embrace Jesus. Instantly, our hearts are transformed. Our spirits are converted. But the working out of what God has worked in takes time and it occurs little by little. And along the way, valuable lessons are learned. Patience is developed. Maturity is cultivated. God takes us little by little and grows us and allows us to become victorious. He says, but the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings into your hand, and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. 
Verse 26 is extremely important. It teaches us to hate. Did you know God wants you to hate? Yes, He does. He wants you to detest and abhor anything that is sinful. Anything that will drag you under. Moses tells us to hate the abomination. To not to bring any abomination into our house. Not that porno magazine. Not that bag of marijuana. Not that dirty movie. Not that raunchy video game. Not that occult literature. God hates those things. They are an abomination to Him. And we need to learn to hate what God hates. Lest you suffer the same destruction intended for that abomination. That's what he says. Evangelist Billy Sunday, I think I have a picture of him. This was a fiery guy. Matter of fact, I heard this quote just last week at the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College up in Chicago. They actually had a little clip of this. You punched a button. I went to this exhibit and you punch a button and it's got Billy Sunday saying what I'm about to read to you right here. So I can't do it as well as he did it, but this is what Billy Sunday once said. I'm against sin. That's about how he said it. I'll kick it as long as I got a foot. And I'll fight it as long as I got a fist. And I'll butt it as long as I got a head. And I'll bite it as long as I got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. Put Billy Sunday back. You see him saying that? Here's the key to discipleship. Hate sin. Love God. You want a better life? Hate sin. Love God. You want to grow in Christ? Hate sin. Love God. You want to make it through this world? Hate sin. Love God. You want to get to heaven and hear well done, good and faithful servant? Hate sin. Love God. Chapter 8 tells us God's purpose for Israel's wilderness experience. That it wasn't just to let the older generation die off. No, it was a period of testing. It was a period to test the faith of the younger generation. You see, there are no self-made individuals in the desert. It takes daily miracles from God to survive in the desert. You have to learn to walk by faith in the desert. And that's one reason God kept them in the desert for 40 years, to teach them faith. He says, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Notice why. To humble you and test you. To know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you. Allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna. Which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's the verse that Jesus quoted when the devil tempted him to try to prove that he was the Messiah by turning those stones into bread. In other words, we feed our bodies with bread, but we feed our soul with something richer. Our soul needs more nutritious food. It needs the Word of God. 
Only God's word can fortify and satisfy the spirit of man. It was Charles Spurgeon who once commented on this word every, as in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He wrote this, In places where they cut diamonds, they sweep up the dust, because the very dust of diamonds is valuable. And in the word of God, all the truth is so precious that the very tiniest truth, if there be such a thing, is still diamond dust and unspeakably precious. Everything in you, you read in God's Word is precious and important and can speak a truth to your life. Even the diamond dust of God's Word is valuable to us. Verse 4, he says, Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Wow! Talk about God's provision. My boys can wear out a pair of jeans in a week. They can wear out a pair of sneakers in six weeks. Imagine going 40 years in the wilderness with the same clothes and the same shoes. They walked on a desert floor for 40 years and never needed Dr. Scholl's. Can you imagine? Verse 5, You shall know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Oh my. Did you hear that? You shall know in your heart. Now you know this in your head, but that's not the point. We, we all know this in our head, that God is our Father and He disciplines His kids. But do you know that in your heart? Have you accepted that and embraced that? That God is a good daddy. And because He loves you, He will spank you from time to time. Don't resent it. Don't be surprised when it happens. Chalk it up to God's love for you. When you're disciplined by God, it means you, you're His kid. It means, and then He's taking responsibility for you, and He's faithful to you. You know that in your head, but I hope tonight you'll know that in your heart. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. But beware. Here it is again. That you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. Apparently, we can get so enamored with the gifts of God that we forget the giver of those gifts. Don't forget. You have a responsibility to remember the work that God has done for you. 
who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which you were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end, that you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. Oh my. But that can happen. God works miracle after miracle after miracle on your behalf, and then you rise up and you take credit for it. You rise up and say, my power and my might has gained me this wealth. Reminds me of the woodpecker pecking away on the tree trunk. A thunderstorm was brewing, and all of a sudden a bolt of lightning hit that tree, split it right in two. And that's when the woodpecker pecker kind of stuck its chest out and started saying, wow, look at the power in my beak. Hey, God doesn't bless your business and your family and your finances for you to turn around and take the bows. Give the glory to whom it belongs. God has blessed you because He wants you to honor Him. He wants you to give Him the glory. Live humbly before God. Verse 18. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish as the nations which the Lord destroys before you. So you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. And there we have Deuteronomy chapters 5 through 8. And we have a responsibility to do what? To remember. Father, help us. Help us, Lord, to take that responsibility seriously. Help us, Lord, to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And help us to pass on that passion to our kids by teaching them as we go, as we walk in the way. As we lie down, as we rise up, as we go to the grocery store, as we hang out in the ballpark, as we fellowship in the living room, help us, Lord, to constantly be bringing you into the picture, communicating truths about you, expressing our love for you. Help us, Lord, to pass on our passion for you to our kids. This is our, as parents, this is our top priority. Help us, Lord. And help us to remember to tell our kids our testimony and share with our kids how you've been active in our lives and how you are active today. Help us, Lord, to pass on a legacy to our kids. Lord, we love you. We, we've studied so much tonight, so many things to reflect on. Help us to remember what we've heard. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.